Well, good morning, church. How's everybody doing today? Yeah, thumbs up, thumbs down, or just kind of like, I ask the people online, just kind of like, meh, right? There's like the meh kind of place that we get to. Um, I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the pastor here at Table Life Church. So if this is your first time with us or worshiping online, I just want to extend a special welcome to you. And I'm glad that you've chosen to be with us today. And hopefully you received a worship guide on your way in. That's for you to follow along in the notes if you're the note-taking type. It's also available online, too, on our website. You can just download that and also follow along. And it might be your account down to lunch. It may be notes you go back to later. There's questions at the end of it too that you can use in your devotional time and encourage you to do so as we've been in this, this Were You There series through this season of Lent. Um, but I want to start off with a question today, kind of fun question. Um, my alter ego is the pastor of fun, um, so I like to have a little bit of fun. But um, I have a question for you. When you were a kid, who or what did you want to be? Who or what did you want to be? And I'd like to take about 20 seconds here, and I'd like you to turn to somebody close to you. Maybe they're a stranger. Please introduce yourself before you tell them what you thought you were going to be when you were five. Um, but we're just going to take a minute here, turn to somebody. If you're online, then you can just maybe put that in the chat if it's acceptable, I guess. And, um, and we'll also connect with you. So ready, set, go. Okay, great conversations have just been started, which is awesome. So you can continue those. So now you know a little bit about somebody that maybe you didn't know before. But um, we don't have time to go through to ask everyone to share. Um, but would your, the thing or the person you wanted to be, would it fit in any of these categories? Was it a superhero? No, really? One, okay. There we go. Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate that. And maybe on online we also have you guys. Was it a cartoon character? No, nobody wanted to be. Okay, I don't know what y'all wanted to be. Um, was it a veterinarian? Yeah, okay. A couple in the back here. Okay. Was it an athlete? Some kind of athlete. Okay, we got some athletes here. Um, what, about, what about a dancer? Yeah, dancing. Okay, we have Rockette over here. Um, I, I'm trying to think, what, what other, somebody just shout out, what was something that you wanted to be? Something acceptable, like I said. What? What's that? Actor or actress? Any those? Okay. Any any anything else that you feel like? Yeah. In the a cowgirl or cowboy? Yes, cowgirl or cowboy. That's that's pretty awesome. Well, um, I'm gonna have to get around and ask some of you all what you just talked about, but um, but I just wanted to share a little bit about me. Um, someone I wanted to be was MacGyver. Yes. I thought he was super cute too, but I also wanted to be him because he was like super, super smart and he always saves the day, right? 
It takes like, like a rubber band and like a match or something. He makes a bomb that like blows up and like they walk out and they're able to save the poor children that are, that are being taken. Um, I, it was super fun. I used to watch the show all the time. The classic version, not any of these like new, new versions, whatever. But, um, but you know, we think about these things and, and probably some of those pieces, I'm, I'm guessing, have changed what you wanted to be um, since that time when you were a kid. But... Um, but we're gonna talk about today this thing called identity. Identity, who are you? Who are you? What, in other words, what defines you? What defines you? Because our identity is very, very important. How we see ourselves, who we are, but our identity influences what you do. What you do. And there's times in life, I think, periodically, that we face questions of our identity. That that's maybe, things, maybe things that you thought were the case aren't the case, or maybe they have been stripped away or changed in a way. But it goes back to that question, who are you? Well, the same thing happens with Jesus that you know. The same thing happens with Jesus, this question of who is he? Who, who is Jesus? And, and maybe you remember this, but several years ago, there was this book and this movie that came out, The Da Vinci Code. Um, also, Time Magazine has done periodic uh, covers and articles and things all about um, this question of who Jesus is. And, and, and people like to surmise, of course, Da Vinci Code is fiction, but it really brought to the surface this question of who is Jesus? Who was he? It, it, kind of a popular version, but, but even in that, as these kind of cultural things come up and, and Jesus is kind of brought to the surface of our attention, um, we, we often realize that the question of Jesus actually is important to more people than we think. The more people are interested in, in who Jesus is, even if they don't like church or religion, um, but there's something about exploring who Jesus is that, that brings that to our attention. Um, and I think these times that, that in like popular culture that Jesus comes to the surface, I think it can be a great thing for the church, an opportunity for the church, because it helps us go back to the story in the, of Jesus in the Gospels, a story that we often assume that we know so well. Did you know our identities are actually tied together? That those times in life that you want to know who you are, you want to define yourself, you want to know yourself, in order to do that, you need to know the God who made you. It's, it's just like anything that we buy, like you kind of want to know the manufacturer or the maker because if it's, if it's some name that, that you don't know versus maybe a brand name, you know what's going to last, right? It tells you a lot about the object. Well, in a similar way, if we want to know ourselves, we need to know the God who made us. And, and if we want to know the God who made us, we need to know Jesus. We need to know Jesus. So we've been in this series, Were You There?, where we've been traveling to the places of Jesus, starting out in the wilderness, in the wilderness where Jesus was baptized, and the hands are into this time of temptation, 40 days. And then he moved to uh, the town of, anyone remember? Okay, ready? We're going to try this again. He moved to the town of Capernaum, the place of healing, right? All these healings took place. And then from there, he went to this place that you don't want to be, 
Samaria. He went to Samaria, the place that you've been trying to avoid. And then last week we talked about the, the, those of us that are kind of ocean or sea people. He went to the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. Well, several weeks ago, when we went to Capernaum, which is kind of like this town that's on the Sea of Galilee, and I talked about mountain or beach person, um, I learned a lot that we have a lot of mountain people here. I asked the question, um, maybe that we should have Lumberjack Sunday sometime in the future, Plaid Sunday. So by popular demand, we're going to the mountains today. Can I get a yes and amen from the mountain people? Yes and amen here. Okay, so we're going to the mountains. Caesarea Philippi is the place of identity. That's the place we're going to today. And it's actually a turning point in the Gospels, a turning point in the story of Jesus. And we're going to ask the, the, these big three questions that are really addressed in this place. Who is Jesus? And then who are you? And then who are we? Who are we? So the where, though, is crucial. Caesarea Philippi, uh, Jesus, he leads his disciples to a very unusual location that's about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. And, and this, this city is at a confluence of two rivers. There's melting snow that's coming from a nearby mountain that's called Mount Hermon. That's about 9,000 feet above sea level. And you imagine that there's water that's plunging down these cliffs of these mountains that kind of give this city a very majestic presence. And, but also Caesarea Philippi had a kind of dark side. It had a dark side because the original name for the city was the city of Peneus, Peneus, named after the Greek god Pan. Maybe you remember him from studying in like third grade. Well, the Greek god Pan was a god who was known for his fertility rights. And lots and lots of, let me just say this, crazy, crazy stuff that Pan promoted. Lots and lots of crazy behavior. Well, in 4 BC, the, something interesting happens. Herod's son, who was the king at the time, Herod's son, his name was Philip. He decided to rename the city from being uh, the city of Peneus to the city of Caesarea Philippi after himself and his dad. Kind of nice, right? But, but notice this. One of the main features, though, of, of this city is this giant rock face. This is what it looks like. A rock face that... The Romans had built temple after temple after temple to God after God after God that they were worshiping. It was kind of like a strip mall for the gods, imagine. And they're, they're kind of built into this rock face, so it's overlooking the, the city where people lived. And get this, at the time of Jesus, this is super important here, at the time of Jesus, the newest temple added to the mix had been built for Caesar. It was built for Caesar, who called himself, you may think of these as familiar names, but Caesar called himself the son of God, king of kings, and lord of lords. And it's actually, if you go there today, you can see these words inscribed on that temple. That was inscribed for him, for the Caesar. So you imagine the disciples must have totally felt like fish out of water going to this place. Because there's lots and lots of crazy stuff going on. You know, this is even, think of Las Vegas on steroids. And everything out in the open, just totally going on. They were going to the forbidden city, what was known like that. It was like, say, if Pastor Chris, if I would take, a, a, say, a planning retreat to Atlantic City to the strip clubs. 
to take our leadership team. We're going to go there. They'd probably be like, hey, is there something, you know, you little something going on up here, right? We're going for a mission trip. <laughs> well, that's what's going on here. Jesus' disciples are probably very, very shocked as they're entering the city of Caesarea Philippi. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, lots of things have taken place. There's been the healings, there's been the miracles, there's been the teachings, there's been this great revealing about this Jesus who has been walking the earth. And the question at Jesus, at this point in Jesus' ministry, uh, lots of people have opinions of who this Jesus is. So he takes his disciples here. And imagine that as he's speaking, he's standing in front of that huge rock face of temples, that strip mall of temples on the sides. And he turns to his disciples, to these guys, and he asks them a question that you should not ask your friends unless you're open to hearing the answer. And Matthew tells us this, chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So the first question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I don't recommend trying to ask people this question to say, you know, what's the word on the street about me? Like, you better be able to receive that. But Jesus does that, and he listens to what they say, because there's always a they, right? They're saying this, they're calling you that. And, and their, their response to him was, well, some people just think you're a reincarnated prophet. Or maybe you're John the Baptizer being like Schwarzenegger, you're back, right? There's, there's so many different opinions about who Jesus is. And I dare to say there's just as many, maybe even more opinions in the 21st century, just as there were in the first century. And maybe you share one of these, you know, that for some people, Jesus is a good man or a teacher. Maybe it's genie in the bottle, Jesus. You like my pictures here? Or maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, what does he go like that? Like buddy Jesus, right? He's my buddy. Or maybe he's boyfriend Jesus. Uh, you got, you got, got the shirt there. Um, maybe it's therapist Jesus. He's here to just help me. Or cheerleader Jesus. Maybe he's President Jesus, Jesus for president. Or Build-A-Bear Jesus. I just kind of take the parts I like and I put them together and leave the other parts out that I don't. Lots and lots of ideas who Jesus is. See, we often find in Scripture, though, a picture of Jesus that is different than one maybe that the world promotes. He does give credit, though, to the crowds, we have to give credit to the crowds, though, because while they're saying, well, maybe they're wrong to say he's a reincarnated prophet, he's John the Baptist, you know, he's kind of Jeremiah, I don't know, there's Elijah mixed in there. One thing we do have to give credit for is that they, what they did get right is that Jesus is not a diversion from what God has been doing all along. He's not a detour from God's plans, or that long line of stories that we see in the, ver in the part of Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures, he's connected to it, to what God has been doing. But then we see he goes deeper. He goes from, who are they saying the Son of Man is? Who are they saying I am? He, said, he goes on and says, but what about you? What about you? This is, this is personal here. Who do you 
say I am. Not just what they're saying, guys, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, the bold one, right, the one with the potty mouth, he answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Who do you guys think I am, Jesus says? You've been with me a little while. You've been traveling, journeying for several years at this point. In other words, he's asking them, why are you following me? Why are you here? You have a lot of other choices of things that you could be doing with your life and spending your time. Why is this so important to you? And I think for most of us, at some point, we're faced with that question. To say, uh, maybe it's an ongoing thing. Uh, to say, why am I here? Why am I following? Why am I worshiping? Why am I giving? Why am I a part of this? Because many people, though, drift through life without asking the major question of who is God? Who am I? Why am I here? Going from day to day to day, I think we all at some point need to visit Caesarea Philippi in our soul to say why. And we see that Peter, Peter, the outspoken one, he finally gets the right answer to a question. What does he say? He says, you are the Messiah. You're the one we've been expecting. It's an extraordinary statement. He says, we believe that you are God's chosen one. The word Messiah or even Christ means anointed one, meaning that we've been waiting, he said at this point, he was, there, we've been waiting 3,000 years for this, that you are the one that we've been waiting for to make things right, the Son of God here present among us. And remember where he's saying this, where Peter is saying this, saying this in front of the newest temple in the mix to Caesar, which is inscribed, as son of God, king of king, and lord of lords. With Peter's confession, this is the turning point in the Gospels. Because from here on, this story makes a dramatic shift towards the cross. It's no longer about the ministries and things that Jesus is teaching and doing, but that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem for one purpose and one purpose alone. But one thing we have to realize here, this confession of Jesus as the Son of God. This was not the first great confession of the, one of the disciples. There are many other records of people actually confessing who Jesus is, whether or not they were fully sure. That's another thing. Often we think in this passage of Peter as being the first to express the true identity, but I think it's something different. I think he was the last. I think he was the last, and that's why Jesus, for him, it was such a big deal because Peter, Peter was taking a while to get it, and that adds significance, super significance, to what Jesus says next. In verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. You're the last one to get it, in other words, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you... You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. So the second great question, who are you? Jesus is defined as the Son of God. 
as the one who God has been using all of history as the culmination of that to bring that finality to that story. But the second question is also important, but it piggybacks off of that. Who are you? Who are you? Jesus turns to Peter and says, finally, you're getting this, dude, right? I've waited a while. Maybe you feel like that. You're literally like, my whole life, I've been just kind of going through. But then there was this one point that I'm like, oh my gosh, I get it. I get who Jesus is. This changes the story. This changes how I see my life. This changes how I see other people. This changes the world. And actually, in Mark's version of this story, it's interesting. Mark positions his story um, with a story about spiritual blindness, of, of people not being able to see and then being able to see. It's very interesting. Um, we have to also realize that some of the stories of scriptures are arranged differently than we would probably arrange them today. They're not necessarily chronological, but grouped by different places that they occurred. But, but back to this story. We see, though, in this, this section that, that Jesus, though, when he, he calls Peter out at this moment, he makes a play on words. He says, you are Peter. You are Peter. The word he's using here in the Greek is petros. Petros. And the word petros really means pebble. Think of like the smallest little piece of rock that you can imagine. Just a tiny, tiny little pebble. But then he says this. He says, but on this rock, and he uses a different word here. He says petra. Petra. And the, the word that that alludes to, this idea that that alludes to, is basically this, a huge rock face. Not a pebble but a huge, huge rock face, like the one that Jesus is standing in front of. And then he says, on you, on this rock, I will build my church, church. And the word he uses here is ecclesia, ecclesia. Can you say that with me? Ecclesia. Remember, you just learned Greek today, which is awesome. We're bilingual here already. Um, but as ecclesia means assembly, Assembly, or, or congregation, or, or gathering. And I recognize this passage, there's a lot of theological controversy here, depending on maybe what tradition you've come from in the past. Is, is Jesus referring to Peter, that he's going to build his ecclesia, his church on, or is he referring to the confession that Peter has made, that he is the son of God? Well, I think the answer is both. I think the answer is both. Because the confessing, the last to get it, pebble Peter, who would then later become chief among the apostles, and the confession of Jesus as the Son of God are two things that Jesus would later use that would lead us up today to build his church. So the question of who are you, you know what you are? You're a pebble. You're a pebble. I'm a, I'm a pebble. And, and I was thinking of this. What the first thing that came to mind in pebble was, um, you could put that picture up on the screen there, Nate. Was that. Aren't we fruity pebbles? The church is fruity pebbles. It's all these like little fruity pebbles and they're all come together. But isn't it a delicious cereal though? Um, but you're a fruity pebble. Not just any pebble. We're a fruity pebble. But by itself, you know, fruity pebble, if it gets on the rug, you know, you step on it, you squish it, it's kind of like over. But together, it's something good, <laughs> something more, something bigger. But, but what also this later means is that the confession, though, is a part of it, too. That when we confess Jesus as Lord, as, as the Son of God, 
You know what that also makes us? Not only does it combine the fruity pebbles together, but it makes you a representative of Jesus. Whoa, right? I didn't expect that, but it makes you a representative of Jesus. The identifying as one of Jesus's not only brings you as a part of the story he's writing, but we also become ambassadors. That's what Paul later talks about in his writings. He calls us ambassadors, that we're a part of this, not just for our own accord, but also to show to others about the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. Because truth be told, you may be the only gospel someone ever reads, the only good news. Well, several years ago, um, back when I was going to school and I was in seminary, I was serving at a church, we had a church league softball team. And um, we played the Baptists and the Presbyterians, and you know, everybody had the, the little uniforms and things. Um, well, there was one game we were playing. I think it was the Baptists. So if you come from a Baptist background, I'm not, I'm not dissing you. I'm not putting you down. But um, we were playing the Baptists, and um, I was behind the plate uh, catching. And um, if, I don't know if all the leagues are like this, but ours, like, you don't, like, wear any equipment. Like, you just kind of stood far enough back, they told you, just, like, stand back to catch the ball. Like, how unsafe is that? Well, anyway, so I was there as, as the catcher, and I think the bases, like, there were several runners on the bases, and this guy comes up to bat and, like, whacks the ball. And, of course, I'm getting ready because there's ready. There's this guy coming around second, going to third. He's coming around third, ready to go home, and I'm ready to catch the ball, I catch it, and I go to tag the runner, and guess what this dude, so he was like about six foot two, guess what he does? He goes like this, bam, bam, and where, where does Chris go? Woo, like fly, like I remember like holding onto the ball, I was like midair, I'm like, Jesus, please Jesus, like don't let me break anything, I like landed on my back, fortunately I was okay, and um, the umpire, he's like, he's like, out, right, he's like, out, and the guy, like, he goes across the plate, and he's like, what? And then the words that came out of his mouth. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus, well, Jesus was one of them, but it was not in a good way. And I'm like, this is church league softball, right? And, but get this, not only did he do that, but then he gets up, and he's ready to, like, sock the umpire. And of course, the umpire, he's like, you're out of here. He threw him out. He couldn't even stay on the field. He had to go home. And the whole way, he's like cussing and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, is this a great witness or what, right? Like, church, we do a crappy job often of, of showing, of being ambassadors, right? This was even the one another piece. Like I said, nothing to down the Baptists. We love you. Um, but we may be the only gospel someone reads, but a lot of times it happens like that. And maybe you've been wrong before by a church, by Christians. You've been this kind of put out, right? And it's meant to be taken seriously. It doesn't mean that we don't mess up. You know, we're all works in progress in that way. But who you follow makes you different. Yeah, you're a fruity pebble, but you're called to be part of something bigger. You're called to be a part of something more we're called to, to be a representative of the one who we follow. But then that next question, who are we? Who are we, right? Not only who are you as a, as a follower, as a called to be a disciple, part of a bigger story to know that you are called and loved by Jesus, but who are we? Well, Jesus, I think, tells us this. He says, on this rock, 
On this rock, I will build my church, ecclesia. I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. See, the word we have to recognize, ecclesia, is that movement. It's an assembly. It's a gathering. It's not a place or a location or a time. See, historically, 300 years after this, Constantine legalizes Christianity. That's when it ceased to be that gathering or that sense of movement. That's when we started to become solid as the big C church. We became a location. How many times today, if you talk to somebody and you're like, hey, you know, come to my church, right? What do they think of? They think of a building. They think of a steeple building most of the time. But it's meant to be a movement. And it didn't do us any good that in our Bibles, later, the German word Kirsche, Kirsche was substituted for ecclesia. They were trying to come up with a word. And that literally means a building. And that's why we think of it that way. But Jesus was talking about a people. The movement is not a club. The movement is not solid because a movement does what? It moves. It moves. It's not centered around a location, but centered around a mission that we're about something, about something more. And I imagine at this point in the story, the, the fruity pebbles, the 12, right? They're all gathered around Jesus and they're looking at each other and they're thinking, you know, he said, on this rock, I'll build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. They're, lots of stuff is going through their minds and they're thinking like us, you know, these are 12 like pretty messed up guys, right? They're not professionals. They haven't been to seminary or Bible college. They're scared to death half the time. And I think they're thinking like, oh my gosh, like we don't even know what we're doing here and we don't even like each other. But then he says this, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Wow. The gates of Hades. There's super significance here because he's standing in front of this rock face with all these little temples to gods, the son of God, the Lord of Lords, the king of kings, Caesar, right? He's standing there, but to his right, is something that looks like this. It's a temple known as the Gates of Hades. There's spring water that flows out. There's often a mist that arises from it. It's an eerie presence. See, for, for the Jews, Hades wasn't hell, but it was the place of the dead. The place of the dead, an eerie kind of presence. It represented death. So he's standing at the gate in a sinful city, he's pointing probably to his right to say, the gates of Hades, the death itself will not stop my church. And you all have been given the key to this, the key to the kingdom, the keys. He says, no death. Jesus' death, you know, he'd be resurrected, but his death, Peter's death, John's death, nobody's death is going to end the life of the church. Nothing will stop it. But I'm sure even in the midst of those disciples, probably at that point, somebody else, I don't know who it was, maybe it was, um, maybe it was uh, John, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, somebody probably wanted to raise a hand at that point and say, hey, you know what, Jesus? Like, just question here. Are you paying attention? Like, do you know what happens to people who start movements in our time? They're under Roman occupation. They're, they're basically taking movements and squishing them like a bug, and I'm sure somebody was probably thinking, or maybe they said aloud, and this just wasn't recorded by Matthew, but somebody was thinking, you know what happens to people who start new movements? Do you know that Rome is not a fan of new movements? 
Do you know the temple leaders are not a fan of new movements, Jesus? And there's other people running around saying they're the Messiah. You probably don't know any of them, but there were probably about 50 to 100 people that were running around at Jesus' time saying, I'm the Messiah, and they had followers too, and yep, we don't know anything about them. Isn't that interesting? And they were all executed. Do you know Judas, by the way? He was one of them. There was a guy named Judas too, and he was running around. They were all saying, I'm the Messiah, and they were all put to death. Jesus knew that. The disciples knew that. But I think Jesus knew exactly what happened to people who started movements, and it happened to him. It happened to him, and that's the great mystery because the group of followers that he had had no idea what an epic moment of time that this was. But unlike every other false messiah, like everybody else, his death was not the death of a movement. That's because Jesus didn't do what every other dead person did. He didn't stay dead. I will build my ecclesia, what he's saying here is it's, it's a future thing. It's a future testing. This is a different kind of movement. In this kind of movement, in this kingdom, he would let, the king himself would lay his life down for his subjects instead of expecting the other way around. He would ask his followers then not to lay down their lives for him, but for whom? One another. To love one another. And guys, it's actually a miracle Looking back over history, it's a miracle the church has survived. Because how was it that in the first century, there was a first century movement birthed basically in the armpit in Israel in the, of the Roman Empire, whose leader, Jesus specifically, was rejected by his own people, had a band of crazy guys that didn't make the cut, then he was crucified, and, and, and then somehow it thrived in the face of violent, organized, state-funded resistance. How did that happen? How is it if you visit Rome today, get this, the very Romans that were against all this that was going on, how is it if you visit Rome today, you will see a cross commemorating the crucifixion of Jesus hanging over the emperor's entrance in the Roman Colosseum? That's weird, right? That we would take a symbol of death and we would make it something else, a symbol of victory. It's something historians have pondered for generations the survival and the thriving of the church, and most actually arrive at the same conclusion. Karen Armstrong, author of Field of Blood, Fields of Blood, she says this, against all odds by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. We still don't really understand how it came about. There's this other guy, Bart Ehrman, he's a religious scholar. He's actually an atheist, but he wrote a book, The Triumph of Christianity. He said, Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in that empire. It was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. How, right? How? We still have shadows of Christianity's influence. That even if you're saying, I'm not a person of faith, I'm still trying to figure this out, that, that's great. But you know why the world is aghast at what's happening in Ukraine? See, once upon a time in this world, what was happening in Ukraine was just another thing. Nobody thought anything of it. It's like, it stinks to be you. That's the way it is. I'd probably do it too. But that mindset has changed. You know why? Because of Christianity. That's why we have hospitals, believe it or not. That's why we teach children. That's why there's such a thing as women's rights. That's why we believe that there's human dignity and it's against the law to commit murder. These are all effects of the ecclesia, a little movement started with a ragtag band of people who then saw their leader die and go to a cross and was buried. But the difference was he rose. Something happened. 
But the turning point in the story ends a strange way. He orders his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. Why? This is kind of weird, right? You probably read that. You're like, oh, that's kind of strange, right? Well, Messiah, to most people, was just as much a political title. Everyone assumed that there would be a political leader, a warrior who would come and put Rome in its place. And so for Peter, for Jesus, for the people around, Messiah still meant two different things, and Jesus is doing something very, very different. He's headed to a cross, and he's headed there for us. And I think that gives us hope, because not only is our uh, our church, Table Life Church, we're not a religious place or a group. We're part of a movement, guys. The Fruity Pebbles come together saying, how could God do this, right? How could God use me? How could God do, do this? But we, yet we come together and we're a part of a movement that no matter what has come against it, has not stopped in 2,000 years. So who are you? Maybe it's time to start with who Jesus is. Not what they, whoever they are in your life, say about him, but about you. Because Jesus' Jesus's identity transforms your identity and our identity. And when we, when we realize our identity, that then things come together. Because the ecclesia, it, it means that we're following someone that, that matters, that's, that did something miraculously, historically, 2,000 years ago. And we're following the one who invited the fruity pebbles to build it. That's the point. Who are you? Are you something more? Are you something bigger? I want to close out our message today as we lead up into the table. Um, just with a, a time of confession here, because I recognize we're all in different places, all with different experiences and different times. But today, I want you to hear the word that nobody gets to decide your identity except for Jesus. So I want to invite you just to get comfortable just for a couple of minutes here. And I want you to just close your eyes and maybe assume a posture. Maybe your hands, your palms are held out. Maybe you fold them in your lap. Maybe you bow your head. Whatever feels right to you. Nobody gets to decide your identity. Some of us are paralyzed by sin. Some of us, maybe you, maybe you're not a good person, and right now you're in the middle of something very, very dishonest, dealing with others, with work. Maybe there's an affair involved. Maybe there's greed involved. Maybe you've made bad decisions or hurt people on purpose, even though you try to hide it. You're not a good person. You're not doing things that honor God, but guess what? Guess what? Jesus invites you to come to the front of the pack, to come and be healed, to bring your pebble, to turn to him. Allow him to forgive you and give you a new start. And some of you, you wrestle with superiority. You're plagued by comparison, plagued by anger or fear. Maybe you're feeling stuck. Maybe you're plagued by sarcasm. You've, you've been here before. You're not going to believe anything from anyone, even Jesus. But guess what? If you're a skeptic or you're wrestling, you belong right here. You're invited to take your pebble, to bring it, to be close to God. Because Jesus wants to heal and forgive and to do something new in your life. And maybe, maybe you're here, maybe you're hiding behind a wall of achievement or money. 
or nice clothes. You have a great home, great car, great family, but inside you know that isn't the whole picture. But you've been hiding a feeling of being something else, someone else. Maybe you feel inferior, imposter syndrome. Jesus calls you to the center. And I want, he says, I want to heal you, to forgive you, and to do something new in you. Maybe you're wrestling with an addiction right now. You don't even like that word. You don't even like to call it that. Maybe you're obsessed with perfection. Maybe you feel like a failure. Jesus sees it and says, you, Fruity Pebble, you belong right here at the center. I want to heal. I want to forgive and do something new in your life. Or maybe you're just trying so hard to be good. You're looking down on others. You judge them. You just kind of can't help it. And Jesus says, I want to heal. I want to forgive. I want to do something new in your life. It's critical who Jesus really is. Who are you? Who are you meant to be? Because Jesus was the son of God. And who deserves to be close to God? The answer is you.